0: Welcome to ArmBrand with Donnie Deutsch. I'm Donnie Deutsch. And of course, as you know, if you're a listener of the show, this is the podcast dedicated to the premise that everybody and everything is a brand. And what we want to do today is take a look at some of our best conversations for 2022. Today, you hear from Neil deGrasse Tyson, Katie Kirk, and Jamil Hill. But first, we have best selling author and professor Scott Galloway. Listening as Scott gives us his predictions for the future of Facebook and the metaverse, Bezos and Amazon, and Elon Musk and Twitter. The scary part, when you think about it, you've talked about this, that you've got, you know, seven companies that make up 50% of the the S&P. And when you have a situation like that and you have something that's so bloated up top, you fall faster. You know, we saw Facebook lose, what is it, 30% of their value after one earnings call or whatever the hell it was, 20%. And that's Mm -hmm. scary stuff. And I know you, obviously, you talk a lot about the big four. We'll take Netflix out of it and call it the big four. Um and you're you're actually very short on the future of Facebook. I'm not talking about the stock that you really you see you you've said that strategically it's the right move what what Zuckerberg is doing, you know, moving to meta because Facebook is just kind of a bloated empire at this point, but you still see not great things ahead for Facebook.
1: There's some emotion here, which is also, which is always dangerous in terms of protecting um, the actions of a company because my emotions take over. I think Facebook is a mendacious company. I think we're net gainers from big tech. There's some externalities we need to address, but if we could push a button and do away with big tech, I don't think we'd want to push that button. And I think the majority of nations would take all of these companies with all of their problems and say, sure, relocate to Stockholm or to Cape Town. We'd love to have you. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true of Facebook. I think Facebook is actually a net negative. If you look at when social went on mobile, we've seen just undeniable increases in depression among teens, especially among teen girls. I think they are the, they're the brightest people, their greatest effort at the most senior levels around delay and obfuscation from the damage they cause as opposed to trying to address those issues. So I, I have some bias against Facebook. Now, having said that, if I really wanted to hurt Facebook, I don't think I could have in my wildest dreams come up with a better, more effective plan than what I refer to as the Oculus, which will be the greatest tech hardware failure of the last decade. 40 to 70% of people who put on an Oculus, which is Mark Zuckerberg's big push into the metaverse, uh, report feeling nauseous. And today they announced, ironically, that they're cutting costs at Reality Labs. They're spending around 2 or $3 billion a quarter to try and make this transition to the metaverse. So I think Mark Zuckerberg's fever dreams of uh, moving to the metaverse are dead on arrival already. Uh, they sold, I think, five or seven million units of Oculus last quarter. Last year we sold 70 million pairs of Crocs you sell five to ten times more game sets. I think the the portal, if you will, Oculus is a portal into the metaverse. And the majority of my knowledge around the metaverse comes from Disney Plus's series Loki. But you need a you need a seamless portal into other 3D dimension or 3D renderings of the web, which is kind of what the, the metaverse is. And the, the portal that everybody has and is the most underhyped product to the most overhyped product of Oculus, the most underhyped te- technology hardware product is Apple's AirPods, which, if they were a standalone company, would be a Fortune 200 business just behind MasterCard, just ahead of Estee Lauder. So I think, as much as Facebook is going to do a face plan around the metaverse, I actually think Apple is kind of the unknown toll booth that no one's talking about in terms of the metaverse. So I'm very bearish on Facebook. At these price levels, it's actually. Probably, you could argue, a decent buy because it's still an incredible business. But Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse, I think, is dead on arrival.
0: And how are we feeling about Bezos and Amazon these days? I think he's going to come back. I think
1: he's going to pull a Howard Schultz and come in as the White Knight and return to... Uh, Amazon, if Amazon goes below 2,000 bucks a share, which will be about a trillion dollars, I think there's a decent argument that AWS is worth more than the entire company. So I think two, one of two things will happen uh, in the next 12 months if the stock continues its decline. One, Bezos will come back in. Because I the thing about Bezos, his superpower is storytelling. In addition to being a great operator, he can get on an earnings call in the face of declining revenues and say, we're going to continue to massively invest in this key area and play offense when everyone's playing defense. And the market just loves his story, his demeanor, his leadership. I don't think Andy Jassy brings that kind of storytelling capability. I mean, you're you're going to forget more than I'm ever going to know about storytelling and branding, but there's just few people in business history who can weave a narrative more credibly and get your greed glands going like Jeff Bezos. He's the guy that shows up and says, investors, sit down and then he talks about i was going to have the first vaccinated supply chain and they're doubling down on PPE and protocols to make sure that everything ships in 48 hours despite a raging pandemic but it's going to take losses way down and everyone bids the stock price up and they don't have that mojo right now yeah and then AWS my prediction is AWS is the most profit is the most valuable company in the world by 2025 after Amazon spins it it's the fastest growing uh, most profitable part of, of technology, the cloud, and the biggest kind of best-run cloud company in the world is with, now stuck within an e-commerce company called Amazon. So either Bezos comes back or they spin AWS.
0: It's interesting you talk about storytelling and you, you've said that an entrepreneurship is about really selling and telling a story and that, that that's what the best entrepreneurs do. And that it's not, you separate that from people who are liars, that at the beginning of any enterprise, you're spinning a story, you believe it, you 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 you're not quite sure how you got there, but you have to have that wonderment and that almost delusional ability to tell a story, uh, and it's not lying. It's just it's it's just that ability to weave a story that you believe in your gut, and it may or may not be true, but it certainly feels right.
1: Yeah, look, that's what uh, entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur, so am I. Entrepreneur is synonym for salesperson. <laughs> you're constantly selling all the time. If you wanna be an entrepreneur, that means you have a greater tolerance for risk. You don't mind the prospect of public failure. When you start a company and it fails, and I've done this, it's really fucking embarrassing. You feel stupid. You feel like it's an indictment on you personally. And most people are not willing to take that sort of risk around public failure. But what it really means is you gotta be selling all the time. You're selling clients, you're selling investors, you're selling employees. You're just constantly selling everybody. And the way you sell, the way you convince people to join your firm, invest in you, is by crafting a narrative that's really compelling. And the kind of core competence of these growthy stocks was that in their kind of initial stages, they had this vision that was so compelling that they could attract so much cheap capital that they were able to build out a fulfillment infrastructure that made FedExes look amateur. That they were able to make so much... Invest so much in original content that they kind of uh, aggregated a quarter of a billion consumers, uh, subscribers. That's Netflix. So, your ability to craft this story where people just listen and they're like, I'm going to ignore the metrics. I just want to give this person my money is really become the core competence. Now, where you get into trouble is the line between vision, exaggeration, and fraud it gets thinner and thinner, right? Adam Newman exaggerated. Elizabeth Holmes lied.
0: You called the one on Adam Newman. You you were one of the early guys to say, "Well, well, something, something doesn't smell right here."
1: Well, it, it, if you if you pull cheap, if, ch- cheap capital helps you pull the future forward. But what future are you pulling forward? Even with Amazon, they still had they had positive margins when they sold a product, a dollar worth of goods on Amazon.com, they got to keep seventeen or twenty cents. With with WeWork, it was every time they sold a dollar. It was costing them a buck forty. They were flying two Bombardier Global Five Hundred expresses into a mountain every week, and the the thing is, as they scaled, they were only going to scale their losses. Yeah. So it just the business never made any sense whatsoever. That was that was an easy call. That was you you know leveraging this unique insight called math to say, yeah. okay, say they do double or triple their revenues, that just means they're going to double or triple their losses. But storytelling has become the the leaders of today's internet companies all have one thing in common. They speak, and you're willing to just enter into consensual hallucination with them, that if you give them enough money for long enough, they'll figure it out.
0: So if you're advising Elon Musk right now, and um, do we put Trump back on or not on Twitter?
1: Well, first off, I mean, there's a lot there. I have a bias against Elon Musk. He calls me names on yeah, Twitter, I know. so I don't I, like I, the but man. You had, a,
0: you had a good comeback when you called him Pedal Boy or whatever it was. So I thought that was pretty good.
1: Well, he told me I was an insufferable numbskull. And be right. clear, I am not insufferable. But <laughs> so, I mean, my son, my 11-year-old son came home the next day and was very serious. Never talks to me when he comes home, usually he heads to the video games. He comes in and goes, Dad, what's what's a numbskull? <laughs> like, it got back to my 11-year-old. Really? Um, look, I, I don't think the Twitter acquisition is going to close. I think if Twitter didn't have this offer, it'd be trading at 20 bucks. And I think, and now the Tesla stock is going down, his bank account is going down, which is going to have to increasingly margin. And he's basically bought something that is now worth 40% less. I just, people think he's bought the company. He hasn't. He spent a billion dollars for an option to buy it at $54 a share. And guess what, Donnie? He's not going to exercise that option. I don't think Elon Musk is going to own Twitter. Having said that, if he does, tw- if he does in fact, uh, operate Twitter, I-, I think that you should probably put an ex-president back on but if he continues to spread election misinformation, I think you kick him off again. I think it's pretty simple. And this notion, this bullshit notion that this has anything to do with First Amendment, First Amendment is that the government shall pass no law that inhibits free speech. It doesn't mean anything for private companies. And when you have a guy using a platform, I mean, when they kicked President Trump off the platform, election misinformation went down somewhere between 30 and 40%. That is a smart move for a private company. And by the way, they want accolades for it. They kicked him off 11 days after he was 11 days before he, or after he lost the election they deserve no credit for that, yeah. that that bold move but i think eventually you put the president back on with conditions that says okay if you continue to spread lies based on how much oxygen they get as a private company we will make the decision that we have not only obligations to shareholders but we have obligations to the commonwealth and if you continue to spread this big lie we're going to kick you off again maybe it's not permanent but we're going to kick you off i don't think there's anything wrong with that
0: that was the big dog, Scott Galloway. He's amazing. He is one of the smartest guys I've ever interviewed. He's one of my one of my favorite interviews of of all time. Up next, we have astrophysicist, author, and science communicator Neil deGrasse Tyson. This was a fun conversation. We discussed how Neil approaches those who don't believe in science and his thoughts on living on Mars. Here we go. I want to talk a lot today. You you wrote a fascinating article last year for the Wall Street Journal about the mark. I'm a marketing guy, so the marketing of science and, and you know in the face of. Misinformation today, and particularly this was, uh, you know, uh, around the pandemic. And I forgot I'm, all about that article. Okay, yeah, it was We're, like an op-eddy kind of. It thing. It was an op-eddy yeah. thing in Wall Street Journal. I mean, you're so media omnipresent that I know these are little things for you, but it, it was a major <laughs> piece of in the, in, the, in the journal. <laughs> and how we need to market science better, and that you know, particularly in this day of misinformation. I mean, you've got 14 million Twitter followers, and obviously Twitter's in the news. But I, I've said all along that. Misinformation is the greatest manger, Is the greatest existential threat today. It's our threat to democracy. It's a threat to who we are. And as a man of science, uh, talk to me about how we, how we use science or, or the marketing of science to fight misinformation, because they are, I, I guess you would use those as complete antonyms, if you will, science and misinformation.
2: Yeah, they are. And in fact, science as a mission statement uh, is all about establishing what is objectively true. In the, in the world and, and what is not. Not only that, the methods and tools of science ensure as, as much as is possible more than any other thing we've come up with in civilization. It's, it, the goal is to make sure that you don't think something is true that is not or think something is not true that is and the methods and tools of science and the peer review and the repeating of the experiments and the, the scientific method in, in summary is exactly what enables you, empowers you to arrive um, in, in a safe landing zone, provided that you do that properly. And so I've come to conclude, it's almost it's almost a lazy conclusion, but it's I feel it nonetheless, that. People simply aren't taught what science is and how and why it works. So there's a problem in the educational system. If you can have a fully grown adult come out the other side and swear the earth is flat.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I, You know, I'm not there to hit the adult on the head. I'm saying something went wrong in your educational background. Did you think science was just some satchel of facts that'll just change at any given moment, and so you can pick and choose what you want? Is this really what you think science is? Do you think science is just some class you took, and you could ignore it if you want, and move on, and that after your final exam, you can forget about it? No, you don't have that luxury, because you're a voter in a free society, in what we call a democracy, and you get to choose your own fate. You get to choose who leads you, and what will happen to our sector of civilization and if you are not scientifically literate in an era where the issues of science are fundamental to our egg to our existence and you can't you can't apply what you have learned to vote intelligently on this and in an informed way that is a recipe for disaster so my lazy answer for you is it's the education system, right? Which is almost too easy to blame.
0: The problem is we have a de-education system now and it's called the smartphone and it's called social media. Whereas even if people are taught, you the thing we carry around in our pocket, we get bespoke media. And basically, if you're somebody that wants to believe that vaccinations don't work, you can go on your little machine in your pocket and there are experts with quotes around experts, obviously telling you what you want to hear. So how does... How do we, and this is obviously a, a Rubik's Cube, and I don't want to say it's an unanswerable question, but how do we fight that? And that's obviously very in the news right now with Elon Musk taking over Twitter and, and 50% of the people getting the news from Facebook. And that, that is, I've always said that this little machine in our pockets is, is the devil in certain ways because it, it allows us to stray from the truth and, and find justifications for it.
2: Yeah, so part of the straying you're referring to is if, if let's say, I, I really sure Earth is flat, there was a day where I kind of was alone in that view uh, in my neighborhood or even in my town. But now I type that into a Google search and I find every other person in the world who thinks this way, which gives me a false sense of of authenticity, a, a, a delusional sense that, well, because these people agree with me, it must be true. So that's part of the education. Education is not just what you learn. Education is knowing how to ask questions, All right? So ed- again, ed- it's, we think of education as here's a textbook with words that are bold-faced and you get a vocabulary test at the end and, and study for your exam. And that's what we think education is. It's it's not really that. It's an aspect of it. But education is learning how to think, how to process information that you're confronted with, how to judge its authenticity, whether you should believe it, what. Okay, that's what should be going on in the ed- circles of education. And right now, if a 45-year-old is saying Earth is flat, I don't know if there's any way to bring him back. And yeah. so we have to really look at the next generation for that. And by the way, it's not just flat Earth. That's the easy example. They're the people who were d- in denial of climate change for so long. By the way, we've made some progress there. Uh, I looked at the Republican platform in Texas. Uh, 2018, it was it was either 2016 going to 18 or 18 going to 20. I'd have to check my notes. But in that two-year period, the first of those two, this is the official canon for Republicans in the state of Texas. Uh, by the way, Texas, a third, nearly a third of its revenue is oil-based. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a sensitivity there. So in it, the first of the two, it said, um, we reject all claims of climate change. It's like a very, it was denial of science in a political platform. It was like, whoa, yeah. wow, how, why would these think they even have the latitude to do that? You know, that's like overeating this week and then next week saying, I want to repeal the law of gravity yeah. because I'm way too much and I don't agree with it. You don't have that luxury. That's not how it works. Well, two years later, it changed and said, we, we, uh, we reject a climate um, activists or climate alarmists." So it went from rejecting the science to rejecting the people. So I said, oh, that's progress.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there has been a lot of talk with Elon Musk and SpaceX and colonizing Mars. Give me, give me your take on will, will that ever happen? And, and do we want that to happen? Do we need that to happen?
2: I don't see that happening. I, I, I don't mind the ambition of thinking about it, but we have to look at the practicality of it. Just to be clear, you and I may be plus or minus the same age. There was a time when people said, oh, we'll never get to the moon on doubting that we would ever figure out how. Once we got to the moon, no one doubts anything anymore about what science and technology would accomplish, except for maybe intergalactic travel, right? Warp drives. But getting around the solar system, no one is in tech denial of our ability to do that. So when I say we're not colonizing Mars, it's not because I don't think we know how to do it. It's because somebody has to fork up the money And justify it. And what possible justification could it be, I ask? Do do you have some idea? I don't. I don't, personally. Okay, so so one of them is you, you want to put your eggs in more than one basket to protect the human species in case we trash Earth or in case an asteroid takes us out. And all I'm saying is you're not colonizing Mars until you terraform it. Otherwise, everyone's living in habitat modules. Right? So you terraform Mars, ship a billion people, now we're on two planets. I get that. Fine. May I suggest that if you have the power of geoengineering to terraform Mars into Earth, then you have the power of geoengineering to turn Earth back into Earth. This is my big problem with the movie Interstellar. They're looking for other planets to move to because there's a blight on Earth destroying all the crops. Really? Really? A spaceship through a black hole into another dimension <laughs> to populate a planet that you'll still have to convert to be living? That's easier than fixing the blight? <laughs> really? Just get, get back in the freaking lab. Oh, I mean, he... <laughs> it's just oh. biology, for goodness sake. Is there a microbe? Get something to fight the microbe. Get some smart people in there, people. So I don't see that as a solution. I see it as a fun thing to do. Set up a Disneyland on Mars, that'd be fun. Uh, Set up a new sports on Mars, where everybody weighs uh, 40% of what they do here on Earth. That'd be very interesting, or do that on the moon. I can see those as places to visit, not as a permanent outpost of the human species.
0: great to see. Really, really brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Now, let's shift gears and take a look at my conversation with the great Katie Kirk. During this portion of our conversation, Katie gives her thoughts on Roe v. Wade and her fight against disinformation. We see what's going on with Roe v. Wade and we see what's going on with these hearings and, and with just this, this attempted coup and I never remember it feeling we were drifting so backwards and going so in the wrong direction in my lifetime and I just would love your take on that.
4: Uh, Well, you know, we we kind of feel like we're living in the United States of Crazy Town, right? I mean, here the Supreme Court says it's really not up to the states to determine who can carry a gun in public, but it is up to the states to determine who is able to get an abortion. So I feel like there's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. Sort of, you have the Supreme Court. you know, making that decision. And then you have the Senate passing the first piece of gun legislation in 25 years, which quite frankly, I don't think goes nearly far enough.
0: No, it's not. It's a toe um, in the water. And it'll be and, challenged also. Now this precedent sets that up to be challenged in the Supreme Court. Yeah.
4: And I I, uh, I, I, actually picked up the phone and called my senator. I mean, I, it, I, I realized after I hung up, like, calling Chuck Schumer isn't really going to make that <laughs> Sp- big a Bridget difference. It, but my yeah. friend, Cheryl Crow, who who you know, and who's also very passionate about sensible gun laws, not gun control, just sensible gun laws mm-hmm. and reducing gun violence, uh, texted me this morning to, to call not only my senator, but all these other senators that were sort of on the fence. So Tonight, when I'm done with this, I'm going to be making some calls to Capitol Hill. And Mark Barton, who I've become very friendly with, who lost his son, uh, Daniel, at, in, at, at Sandy Hook Elementary School that terrible day, um, also emailed me and and my husband, John, and said, please, please call your senator. Uh, and so it is, um, you know, it is a very strange time. We're waiting for by the time this podcast airs, I think it's a pretty safe assumption, Donnie, that that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, think about the fact that Donald Trump was able to appoint three Supreme Court justices. I think the average is one per presidency, mm-hmm. um, and it it does feel very disconcerting, to say the least. You know. I was just watching the end of. Uh, I've been running around all day, so I'm going to have to get caught up tonight. Uh, the January 6th hearings and the stuff that went on is just so hard to believe. And in some ways, I feel like we're the frogs in the, you know, the slow boiling water that we become inured to just how insane well, this, this has been. That the president of the United States said, you know. Maybe it might have been a good idea to kill the Vice President. Now, yeah. even half kidding, the fact that he reportedly said that is so outrageous that, um, you know, it's just it, you just hope that there will be some some repercussions for what happened.
0: The scary part you talk about the frogs in the water is that as frightening as all this is and was, the future is set up to be more frightening. The I very know. things, the guardrails that were there, a few brave men, a few, you know, profiles in courage and, you know, who stood up, whether it was Raffensperger or uh, with the Arizona Speaker of the House yesterday. And we, there's been all these kind of unsung heroes. And these are Trumpers. But now in the state legislatures, the laws have uh, been moved and the people have been put in place where the odds of this I'm, happening again are not a possibility. It's a probability.
4: And I am so glad you're talking about that. It's not. Uh, this should Johnny. be leading
0: the news every single night.
4: I know and I read recently that many newspapers and and networks are going to have people on the democracy beat. This is how serious it is. Yeah. But you're exactly right. These state legislatures are setting up these measures and codifying these measures that will actually give power to in the hands of a very few people and could possibly and as you said, most likely I guess if the circumstances are right Overturn the will of the people. In other words, your vote won't matter at all in some of these states. And the fact that the fact that it's just happening and these people are doing it with impunity is so beyond excuse my French, fucked up.
0: It, it's not French. It's it's where it's at. And a YouGov Yahoo poll recently said that fifty three percent of Democrats and fifty four percent of Republicans, give or take a point either way, think we will no longer be a democracy. They're actually Saying it. And the part that is terrifying to me, and I'm not comparing it to Nazi Germany, but I am going to compare it to, actually, I am, to any autocratic regime, is that it's like we're marching along. It's like that there's not these crazy alarm bells going off, that it's just half the people on both sides of the aisle are almost resigned to the fact that democracy is coming to an end and not taking to the streets. And it is, I I don't get why there is this almost compliance at this point. And what infuriates me, and you and I know a lot of these people, that when you talk to them about it, their eyes glaze over and all they're thinking about is their taxes and, you know, that, that it's just they'd still rather vote still would rather vote for Trump or DeSantis, because DeSantis is actually scarier than Trump because he's comes better packaged and he doesn't come as obviously crazy, but there's the same fascist leanings. They wouldn't be any different if he was in office and went down and that there is not this revolutionary undercurrent of what's going on in this country right now.
4: Yeah, it's pretty surprising, isn't it? And I think part of the problem is, is this sort of demarcation between what, Some people are reading, consuming, believing. And what other people are, Uh, before the January 6th uh, hearing started, I heard one survey that said 48% of Republicans thought Joe Biden, uh, the DNC, and Antifa were all responsible for the insurrection on January 6th. 48% of Republicans. And then you see that, you know, that there's still a majority of Republicans who believe that Trump, that 70%, Joe Biden, seventy was not legitimately elected. Seventy percent of Seventy percent of And it's, it's. I think it's, it's, it's proof of, of how potent and powerful and persuasive all those three P words, uh, disinformation is. Yeah. And the fact that there is a, an audience that is lapping this stuff out up uh, that that there's a there are um, content creators, if you will who are taking advantage of this uh, to line their own pocketbooks. And it is it is such a monumental problem. I was a co-chair of the Aspen Commission on Disinformation. And the problem is so complicated, but it has become so deeply entrenched in our society. Um, and it, it really is such a, a significant problem. And these... These platforms that cl- that claim they're basically pipes, they're platforms, not publishers, take no responsibility. They don't have those same, liab- they don't have the course, same liability. And of course, in this country, exemption. In this country, we have free speech, and thank God for that. And but it makes it very, very tricky to really do anything about just the mountains of disinformation that are leading so many people astray. I went on Bill Maher after. The election and I think it and after January 6th. And I, I said something that got me in a lot of trouble. I got a lot of hate, but I said that I thought that some of these people who believe that that Donald Trump won the election need to be deprogrammed. And what I meant was that they are getting affirmation, not information. Mm-hmm. They are getting uh you know these conspiracy theories, all kinds of things that that they're buying. And it does make you wonder about the education level and the intelligence of the American people when they can be so brainwashed and bamboozled by lies and 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 falsehoods.
0: Look, fifty percent of people get their news from Facebook, and Facebook does not have the liability that a CBS or New York Times or any other right because until, of Section two
4: hundred and thirty. Yeah. Until two hundred
0: and thirty changes, and that I, I, it's the wild west. You can't, you know, the, you. I have to go if I wanted to run an ad. On NBC about laundry detergent, I would have to go through much stricter regulations to prove that it gets a collar whiter two times faster than Brisk or Risk or whatever the other detergent. Than these life and death things that we see on Facebook, and to me, one of the great villains of our time, villains is Zuckerberg and Sandberg because it is just there is a lot that can be done. It's the it's not just that oh we can't control it they were controlling it in this direction with the algorithms that, that play into this. And this is, a, and it is- um...
4: And part of the problem, Donnie, is that um, the, the it's almost like the man behind the curtain, like Zuckerberg is Oz in some ways, because they won't even let academics and researchers and scientists understand the inner workings of what they're doing, how they're doing. And without really- Knowing those things, it's very difficult to come up with concrete solutions. But, you know, it's funny. I was at a dinner party the other night and someone who had spent a fair amount of time with Mark Zuckerberg just said he has always been, you know, the one thing he cares about is crushing the competition and being the best. And he, you know, this person said, you know, he was stealing people's ideas in high school and taking credit for them. And I just don't think, sadly— He has any kind of uh, north star, or you know, I think he just care. I mean, I don't know Mark Zuckerberg, but this person said he cares first and foremost about being the biggest, being the richest, and you know, leaving people in his rearview mirror.
0: My friend Katie Kirk. Now let's hear from Jameel Hill, the host of the podcast. Jameel Hill is unbothered. uh, Stopped by in April to discuss. A lot of stuff, elitism of journalism and the process of hiring black coaches in the NFL. Powerful stuff from Jamel Hill. Take a listen. I was astounded in, in doing my research that when you were at the Orlando Sentinel in 2006, you were the only woman of color, black writer, journalist in the country. This is not a hundred years ago. This is 16 years ago. That, that, yeah. that just blew me away.
3: Yeah, I guess to be more um, specific, I was the only Black female sports columnist at a daily newspaper in North America. So I was, (laughs) notice I didn't just say America, I said North America.
2: (laughs) North America.
3: Right? So I, I was one out of 405 daily newspapers, I was the only one. And that was... Honestly, embarrassing, not for me. It was embarrassing for the profession sure, that who I yeah. had dedicated my life to, right? It's like, you know, I'm a good writer, but I ain't the best one to the point where I would be the only one, you know? And right. so it just said a lot about where we were as an industry, how much further that we still had to go. And it's it's still kind of shameful because I don't think it's much better now than it was, you know, then. I mean, ESPN.com probably has one of the most, if not the most diverse sports writing staffs, but I would venture to say there's probably not a black female sports columnist at a di- at a daily newspaper right now in the country. I hope I'm wrong, but not one that I can think of.
0: Just, just some stats. In, in, women of color in the United States make up just 8% of print newsroom staff in general, and 12% of local TV news staff, and 6% of local radio staff. So uh, the fact that it's underrepresented in sports is really no... no it's dramatically it's it's a dramatic statement but not so different from just journalism the newspaper business and the local tv and local radio business itself
3: yeah that doesn't surprise me at all i mean in 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 just in sports journalism sports media i mean more than 85% of the jobs are held by white men and um while i know that it is not necessarily a traditional space or considered a traditional space for women you know, there is a message that has been consistently sent throughout my career um, just by these numbers and just by what you see, uh, that there this is not a space where we belong. And uh, what people need to understand about why this is bad and is bad for not just sports journalism, but bad for media in general, is because so much of how sh- uh, stories are shaped are based off these journalists. And you can't. Mm-hmm. shape the stories and shape the context for a diverse society if you don't have one in your own newsroom. Um, and what is kind of clear is that journalism is becoming an increasingly elitist profession. And I know that sounds really weird because at least it sounds weird for me because- this That's was counterintuitive.
0: Always- to, to me, it's actually quite the opposite because of social media and because of the plethora of ridiculous you know, websites, blogs, that- it's anything but elitist today. It should be elitist. But uh, when I say elitist, I don't mean elitist in terms of color or just in terms of brain power. It's it's the opposite to me. But it's interesting. When you use the word elitist, what did you mean by elitist?
3: Okay. What I meant by that is this, is that you have a lot of like magazines. Let's just take those for example. Most of them have unpaid internships, right? If you're having an unpaid internship and we know that to be a writer that the only way you can get experience is by actually writing, right? Because uh, as a friend of mine said years ago, journalism is actually a trade, not necessarily an academic pursuit, because this mm-hmm. is to, to be good at it, you have to actually do it. Well, unpaid internships, how many people can afford to live in can New afford, York on an yeah. unpaid inter- internship? And so that's what I mean yeah. by this is that there's a. There's a, And it not just with magazines, um, uh, but also with newspapers as well, is that when I graduated from college, the average salary for a journalist was $19,000 a year. How many people can afford to go to college knowing at the end of that rainbow is $19,000 a year?
0: And that's Probably. not including maybe two, $250,000 in debt. I mean, so that, exactly. let's, let's put that <laughs> in, into the source also. <laughs> exactly.
3: Yeah. So it is, um, and, and I think that has a, 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 at least an impact or at least is a factor into why Major journalistic institutions remain so white is because you have to be able to weather being poor yeah. or being, you know, essentially working class in order to do this job. Now, I know that everybody looks at me, they look at you, and they look at other people who are on television and think that journalism is actually the opposite of what you said, but these are. You know, this is, that is an anomaly. I mean, what most journalists wind up doing in their career is not winding is not being on CNN, is not being at ESPN. Yeah. It is a working yeah. class profession. And my fear and my concern is that because of what you need to be able to financially weather to stay a journalist, that automatically becomes a major roadblock for mm-hmm. people of color, for black people in particular.
0: I want to get into a, a- a bunch of your, your co- columns, it, columns or articles that you've written for Atlantic because you, you take on obviously the subjects of the day. A couple of columns recently, no surprise on the state of the NFL and and the fact that there's 15 or 17, 18 years after the Rooney rule, there's one black head coach in the NFL and there were three at the time. And explain to me, I don't want to say why that is, because I know why that is. Explain to me how that can be. Let's put it that way. Okay. How, how can that be in this in this day and age? And Roger Goodell is a smart marketing guy, smart business guy. The NFL knows that it's not good for business to have that, to have that stain. So how does this exist right now?
3: Well, one, I think people need to understand the structure of how the NFL works. Roger Goodell is a figurehead. He is not an NFL owner, so he has right. virtually no impact on who the owners hire and who they don't hire. I mean, certainly as a league, you know, he needs to be. He's going to be the face of this issue. But notice they are not dragging Robert Kraft or any of these other owners out to yeah. address why they have. You know, there's still seven NFL teams, I believe, that have never had a black head coach. So. They're not the ones that are taking the brunt of the criticism Roger Goodell is, but Roger Goodell has no impact on the hiring. I mean, he is the lead commissioner. So there's that part of it. So you have 32 NFL owners who, um, while this was not, you know, I don't think this is something uh, where they all sat in a room and said, we're not just going to hire black people, but they're used yeah. to and accustomed to operating their teams in a certain way. And it is difficult to convince 32 different people most of which come from uh, an enormous amount of money because these teams are not their sole source of income. Usually they're a toy, okay? And so it's hard to convince them or get them to understand that they keep following the same hiring patterns. They're comfortable with white men being in charge of their teams. I mean, I think the numbers pretty much bear that out. And I think what I wrote in The Atlantic was, they have comfort with Black men as labor, just not as leaders. And so that's how we get to this point where a league, despite having, um, you know, despite Black players making up nearly 70% of the NFL, which means there's an automatic sort of hiring pool that's already there if you played. Although, as we have seen by coaching hires throughout the league, you don't for that might be uh, the qualification you need to be a Black head coach, because most Black head coaches have actually played in the NFL the white coaches aren't held to the same standard. They don't, I mean, a lot of them, or some of them never even played college ball. And so it's like you have this situation of the goalposts continually moving when it comes to black coaches and to the point where I think something like this, Brian Flores suing the NFL needed to happen. The NFL ownership needed to be embarrassed. And um, I hope that other NFL coaches join his lawsuit or black NFL coaches whether they are a head coach or not <laughs> I mean I hope Mike Tomlin uh, joins Brian Flores is on his staff I hope he joins this lawsuit I, heard, I hope every black coach that has come through that league joins it because I think this is the only way that we'll see the kind of systemic change keep in mind the whole reason the Rooney rule exists is because threat of litigation Johnny Cochran was going to sue the NFL for this same reason and as a compromise the NFL came up with the Rooney rule
0: Explain to me the, your premise, and I'm not challenging it. That the the 32 NFL owners uh, who are uh, white um, have an issue with having men in color in power, and they see them as laborers. You have the same type of owner in the NBA. White guys, for the most part, with the exception of uh, Michael. Is there any, any other black owners besides Michael Jordan? I think and, Michael, in the Michael NBA? Jordan's
3: the Michael Jordan's the only one.
0: Okay, but you have ostensibly you know, every owner who's white. It's a toy. So why is that same equation not exist there?
3: Well, one, I think um, NFL players or NBA players, excuse me, have far more power. They have a lot of individual Mm -hmm. power. They have a lot of collective power. Their contracts are all guaranteed. Good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you look at somebody like LeBron James, uh, I jokingly call him the the commissioner of the NBA, (laughs) all right, (laughs) because of the type of power he can wield. I mean, you have an individual player that can, uh, you know, you look at, the what happened to downtown Cleveland after LeBron left. That's from one player, so they're able to wield a lot more power. Um, the other thing too, I, I think they have um, a much more progressive um, league, just in general. You have yes. younger ownership general, groups. overall,
0: vibrant league overall. Yeah, yes, yeah.
3: you have younger ownership groups. Um, certainly, there's you know black coaches, and that's like no kind of novelty in the in the NBA. Um, or even uh, Black people in the front office, no kind of novelty in the NBA. The NFL, you know, by example or by comparison, they got their first Black team president two years ago. A hundred years of football happened. And they're just now getting their first black team president, uh, who's with the Washington uh commanders. They've never had a majority black owner.
0: Yeah, and a, real, a real progressive organ, real progressive organization. Yeah, one, one in a hundred
3: years. It's like what? <laughs> so but,
0: but it's ironic I, that it's Dan Snyder. I mean, you know, right? We, we know his history. <laughs> exactly yeah, given yeah. all the
3: trouble and all the yeah. um all the concerns uh with him as a as an owner. It's a very exclusive club, and the N- the NFL operates from that mentality as an exclusive club and we had the same conversation remember when black quarterbacks weren't a thing it was the same yes. conversation Doug Williams the
0: they can't wait can't wait. when Doug Williams won a super bowl it was like a, a big deal like that was a yeah. story that was incredible isn't it
3: yeah i mean he was the first uh, black quarterback to win one but before Doug won one the reason why you didn't see as many black quarterbacks as you see now is because there was a prevalent mentality that black Men could not lead teams; they couldn't be faces of. I still think that's
0: there. I, if you look at if you I look do. at the, the drafting, and you look at some of the guys that have made the Mahomes. Okay, there were three quarterbacks taken before him, and if you look at Deshaun Watson, if you, it's still, they end up coming from like being a little bit of an underdog. They weren't. It's still the classic six foot four white guy pocket passer. You know, it's just this. This I still think that's out there. I really. I mean, we're coming a long way, but I still think that exists.
3: Yeah, I mean, we haven't totally distanced ourselves from that. From that, I would totally agree. I mean, you look at the criticisms of Lamar Jackson. I mean, they tried to get him to switch positions. I mean, like that still happens a lot, is that like Michael Vick, same thing, try to get him to to switch, you know, positions. And so um, it's the same mentality. It's just in the C-suite, right? The same mentality is like, oh, can a black man really be trusted? to run an NFL team, uh, trusted to make certain personnel decisions, trusted to lead men, a, a phrase they like to use all the time. And black quarterbacks literally went through the same discriminatory hurdles as black coaches are.
0: I'd like to thank you all for listening to today's podcast. My thanks to Scott Galloway, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Katie Kirk, and Jamil Hill for joining me this year. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere and follow this podcast. You get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. I want to tell you all, there's a very happy Hanukkah, a Merry Christmas, and a happy Kwanzaa. We'll be back next week with another Best of 22. We'll hear from Malcolm Gladwell, Deepak Chopra, Katie and Vanessa Williams. We'll talk to you soon.